I don't know about you, but I still love Play-Doh. You ever played with Play-Doh? Great thing about Play-Doh is that you can create the world as you like it, as you imagine it. You want people with five heads? You can create Rosemary with five heads. <laughs> you want short, fat people or animals? You can create them short and fat or long and skinny or pink or green, whatever you'd like. You can create your world with Play-Doh. And throughout history, Jesus has been treated a bit like that, like a piece of Play-Doh that you can mould any way you like, fashion as you want him to be. Religions do that. In Islam, Jesus is a prophet. That's how they've constructed him. In Hinduism, he's another manifestation of Brahman, just like Shiva or Lakshmi. Ideologies do it. Jesus, the revolutionary, the socialist, the guru, the blonde-haired Aryan, the, the politician. But unfortunately, almost always, the Jesus they create out of the Play-Doh just reflects what the creators are like, the things that they think are important. And we're all prone to that, to create the Jesus I want, the Jesus as I imagine him to be, which usually turns out to be in my own image. But with Uncover, we've been trying to encourage all of us to see for ourselves who Jesus is, to read the, the reports of the witnesses, the original sources, the public knowledge about Jesus right from the first century. Now, the passage we're looking at today isn't one of the evidences in Mark Uncover. It's a section that is left out because there's just too much to see. But what we'll see today is that Jesus won't stay in the cages, the boxes we tend to put him into. The question that comes up in this passage is, by what authority does Jesus do and say what he's doing? Because there's certain sorts of actions that create that question. So if I ran into your microbiology lecture and said, get out, you can't be in here, I presume the question to ask is, who are you? On what authority are you telling us to get out? It's the right question for certain sorts of action. And Jesus has been doing things that force that question and more. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey with everybody saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. He goes into the temple the next day. And it's supposed to be a place of worship and Jesus takes exception to the trading that's going on and he starts to drive people out. He turns uh, tables upside down. He, he stops people going through. He, he creates an enormous scene. He takes control of the temple. And that's the main action that provokes the question from the religious leaders, by what authority are you doing this? It'd be like you going to Parliament House in Canberra, if only you could at the moment. But imagine you went there and you went into Parliament House and you took control. You said to all the, the, the tourists, get out of here. You're not allowed to be here. Go into the parliamentarians' offices and push them out and push them out of the building and say, you're not allowed. Like, on what authority do you do that? And then he withers a fig tree. He says to a tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. I don't normally talk to trees. Jesus does and says something very strange. And then the next day, Peter looks at the tree and says, Jesus, it's withered, that, that tree you cursed. What sort of authority has he got to do that? I mean, if you did that, would you put it on your resume? And then he talks about hurling mountains into the sea uh, in verses 22 to 25. Have faith in God. If you say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and don't doubt it, it's going to happen. What in earth is Jesus on about. Jesus is challenging the status quo. 
He's not just a political revolutionary, otherwise the question would be, what's your agenda? It's much more personal. They ask, what, by what authority do you do this? And so what we're going to do today is take a quick tour through these incidents. It's going to be a little bit of information overload. Try and stay with me. There's lots of stuff on the outline that will help you. Uh, until we get to chapter 12, 1 to 12, which, where Jesus tells a story that really answers the question, by what authority? But there is something you need to realise as, uh, as we read this. Mark has already told us way back in chapter 1 that we've got to read this story of Jesus, the account of his life, with Old Testament ears, listening for things that God had said in the Old Testament that echo down the centuries and help us understand Jesus. So if you've got Old Testament ears, listen. If not, I'll tell you where to look. So we begin with Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. It's the week before the biggest festival for Jews each year, the Passover. And Passover was was very big. Under Jewish law, every Jewish male had to come to Jerusalem, the capital, three times a year. Passover was one of those, and it was the one that was mainly kept. Josephus tells us that more than 400,000 people normally came into Jerusalem in that week before Passover. That's four MCGs worth of people, all crowding into this little city uh, on the top of of a mountain. It was hectic. Uh, Passover celebrated the Exodus, that incredible event 1,500 years or so before when God had rescued his people Israel from under the oppressive Uh, rule and slavery of the Egyptians. It was the defining moment for them as a nation and they celebrate it with joy every year. Except at the moment, and for a while now, they've been under another oppression, the oppression of the Romans who've been occupying Palestine. And so as they celebrate what God did 1,500 years, they're longing for God to do it again. They're longing for the day God's Messiah, God's King of David's line, will come and liberate them. It's a, it's a political tin, tinderbox, and Jesus comes into that tinderbox. Now, the normal thing at Passover was as the pilgrims entered Jerusalem, they would walk in and they would sing what were called the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalm 113 to 118. Psalm 118 says this on the left-hand side, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we will bless you. And Mark tells us that that's, that's what the crowds were saying. Hosanna, which means Lord save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Except they add a bit of commentary. It helps us understand what's in people's minds. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It's going to come one day. The Messiah will come. We're longing for it. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And it seems the crowds don't realise what they're saying. But Mark helps, up, helps us to realise what's going on that Jesus is this Messiah, the son of David, who will be their king, who will rescue them. And we know because Mark gives us all this inside information that the crowds don't have. Go back to verse 2. He says to his disciples, two of them, go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, who are you to take the donkey? Uh, Say the Lord needs it, the owner needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. Now, the crowds don't know that, but Mark tells us. Detailed instructions, very specific. Find a donkey that's never been ridden before, a young donkey. And if challenged, say, well, the owner needs it. Pretty cryptic. 
But if you've got Old Testament ears, your ears should prick up. You know where it's from? What's happening? Yeah, it's in the outline. It's Leviticus, sorry, Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. When God, through his prophet, 450 years or so before Jesus, says this, looking forward to the future, rejoice greatly, Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous, having salvation. He's coming to save you, but he's humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, uh, sorry, the prophecy says that one day Israel's king, the Messiah, will walk into Jerusalem. But he'll come in riding on a donkey, which is not the way most kings enter. They come on stallions. They come in chariots. To come in on a colt, it's almost comic because colts are just little things. Jesus' feet would have been sort of sweeping on the, on the ground as he walked along. It's sort of like Arnie Schwarzenegger coming in on a moped or Scott Morrison on a scooter. Like it's, it's just, just ridiculous. And Zechariah tells us what it means. He's coming humbly, not as a conquering mighty king, but as a peaceful, in weakness king. And Jesus deliberately sets out to fulfil Zechariah chapter 9. The crowds don't, don't twig to it, but the disciples, we're given all the clues. We're supposed to know what's happening. And what he's doing is provocative. He's planting the flag of his gentle kingdom right in the centre of God's world, in Jerusalem, in the temple. And what's going to happen? Because when you plant a flag, it's, it's provocative. What are they going to do? Will they bow to Jesus and welcome him as their king? Or will they kill him? Well, verse 11 tells us what happens. And it's pretty anticlimactic. Jesus goes for an inspection tour of the temple, then goes home for sleep. What? <laughs> That's nothing, isn't it? It's sort of like the action just stops. But the next day, it picks up in a strange way. Jesus, on the way into Jerusalem again, sees a fig tree. It's got leaves covering it. He goes to get some figs from it because he's hungry and he finds it's got no figs. Bertrand Russell, who was probably the premier Western philosopher of the last century, you probably never heard of him, but he was very prominent. He wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. In that book, he said this, that curious story of the fig tree has always rather puzzled me. It wasn't the right time of year for figs, so you really can't blame the tree, can you? I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known in history. That is, he's really saying Jesus was pretty stupid and he was evil. That, that, that's what he's saying in a gentle philosopher sort of way. And it is really bizarre, isn't it? What on earth is Jesus doing? If he's got the power to wither the fig tree, why doesn't he use that power to force some figs out of it so he can eat them if he's hungry? Well, let's try and explore this a bit more. The first thing to notice that really helps us is the sandwich structure of how Mark tells the story. Did you pick that up? He starts the story of the fig tree and then he tells the story of Jesus in the temple and then goes back to the fig tree again. And it's something that Mark uses often. It's a literary device he uses. You can see that, can't you? The, the, the bread, the bread, the meat in the middle. He's done it back with Jairus and the woman. Do you remember back in chapter five where we meet Jairus who's got a sick daughter? She's, she's close to death. Jairus comes and begs Jesus, come and save my daughter. And then he's interrupted by the woman with the flow of blood, with the hemorrhage. And we get that story told. And then we go back to Jairus. His daughter's died in the meantime. Mark uses this sandwich structure 
fairly regularly. I've given you some examples there, other examples. And every time he uses it, it's because the meat and the bread have something to do with each other. They're mutually illuminating. They help to make sense of each other. And here, Mark explains much more about the meat, that is, Jesus in the temple, than he does about the fig tree. But it's going to help us. Jesus goes into the temple precinct, which was huge. The the temple precinct, all the, the courts, was about half the size of the total UWA campus here. Like, it would take you five minutes to walk from one end to the other, or longer if you walked like me. And the temple was a sacred space. There there was not supposed to be any trade there. But as you can see, there's all these different courts. There's the temple proper, there's the men's court, there's the women's court, there's the Gentiles' court on the the far outside. And so if you said, well, where's the the boundary of the temple? It's a little bit vague, it's a little bit open to interpretation and... We, we know from other historians that about 30 AD, a lot of the trade that was needed for the temple moved from the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem into the courts of the Gentiles. Of course, it didn't need lots of trade. At Passover, they needed about 250,000 sheep to get slaughtered. Now, that's pretty noisy rabble, isn't it? 250,000 sheep, lots of blood as well. <laughs> that's trade. And... At Passover, you had to pay the temple tax for your family, and the temple tax could only be paid in a currency that you didn't normally have in your pocket, so you had to change some money. And so it was very convenient to just set up all that trade in the court of the Gentiles. But Jesus comes along and he clears that court. Violent, unexpected rampage, upturning tables, driving out merchants, and all the while teaching. He's not just a fit of temper. He's teaching. He's explaining what he's doing In verse 17, as he did it, he taught them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Old Testament ears, you hear that? Got cross-references? Yeah, Isaiah 56 is the first bit he quotes. It's, It's just a quote. And Isaiah 56 looks forward to the time when God acts to save his people Israel. But he says that saving Israel is too small. He's going to do something far bigger than that. Even the foreigners will then come and offer their burnt offerings and sacrifices. They too will be welcomed into God's temple. And my house, the temple, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But they've turned that into, says Jesus, a den of robbers, which comes from Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, God through Jeremiah convicts the people of Israel who live in Jerusalem of their confidence in the temple. We got the temple. Well, we got the temple. God's going to look after us. Everything's fine when their lives don't reflect God at all. They steal and murder. They commit adultery and perjury. And God says, that house, that temple, which you think is so protective of you that while you've got it, everything will be okay, it's become a den of robbers. It's become a, a harbour for gangsters. That, that's what it is. And he goes on to say in Jeremiah that God is going to destroy that temple, raise it to the ground, which he does a few years later under the hands of Babylon. Which leaves us in a bit of a quandary because in Isaiah 56, the expectation is that the temple will, be, will become a house of prayer for all nations. That is, it'll become even bigger and better than it was for Israel. It's got to keep going. Jesus is coming to cleanse and restore the temple. But in Jeremiah 7... God says, I'm going to destroy the temple. What is going to happen? Is Jesus restoring the temple or destroying the temple? Is he cleansing it 
or condemning it. Well, if you know Mark's gospel or you know the story of Jesus, you'll know the answer to that. Chapter 13, Jesus says, not one brick will be left on another. Chapter 15, the moment Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain in the temple is ripped in two from top to bottom. The, the temple that, that um, symbolised the, the separation of the holy God from unholy people, that is ripped down the centre by God himself, which sort of says the temple is desecrated. It's no more but also says that there's another way now for people like you and me to find fellowship and and acceptance with God that isn't through the temple. Jesus is showing that the temple is going to be destroyed. It has no future. And that gives us a line on the fig tree. Because Jesus sees the fig tree covered with leaves. That is, from a distance, it promises fruit. It looks like it's healthy and, and terrific. But when he gets up close... There's no fruit, just like the temple. But Mark explains because it was not the season for figs. That explanation is really puzzling, isn't it? He didn't find figs because it wasn't the season for figs. You think, oh, well, Jesus should have just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, it's not the season. Bad luck. Let's go somewhere else. I'll go down to Macca's and get, get something to eat. But instead, he curses it. That is, on the surface, Jesus' actions make no sense. But Mark gives us, the readers, the explanatory note because it was not the season for figs. What's Mark doing? Well, he's actually prodding us to think a little bit harder. He's deliberately making us puzzled so that we'll think more deeply, we'll ponder what is going on. If I said to you, listen, I'm going up to the octagon, but my lecture doesn't start yet. Sort of puzzling, isn't it? Well, why are you going now if the lecture isn't going to start? You only go when it's going to start, don't you? But you could think, I'm crazy, or you could think there must be another reason he's going that he hasn't spelt out yet. And that's what Mark is doing. He's making us think, is there something else going on here? And the temple in the middle, that story, the sandwich structure, and Micah chapter 7 helps us understand. Micah 7, God comes looking for fruit among his people, looking for clusters of grapes, looking for early figs, that he craves. That is, he's looking for fruitful lives, uh, uh, holy and righteous lives among his people, but he finds none because their lives are rotten to the core. So Jesus' action is sort of like an enacted parable. As he curses the fig tree, he's telling us what is happening to Israel, to the temple, to the Jewish leadership. They are under the curse of God and they will wither. Uh, there's a good heritage of these enacted parables. In Isaiah chapter 20, Isaiah runs around Jerusalem but naked to try and show the people something about God's message. In Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel goes but naked and he, he does a sort of Lego thing. He builds a model of Jerusalem and the temple and then he smashes it to pieces. It's a, it's a thing that the, the prophets did often in the Old Testament and Jesus is doing it here. He's cursing a fig tree so that we understand that the temple, that Israel, and especially their leadership, is under the curse of God. Is he going to restore or destroy the temple? It's going to be destroyed. But you might say, hold on, if the temple's destroyed, how can God's purposes be fulfilled? How can the Gentiles ever come in and find forgiveness, have their sacrifices accepted, and have a house to pray? I think that's 
The question Jesus answered answers in verses 22 to 25. Have faith in God, he says. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in their hearts that what they believe will happen, it'll be done for them. It's a little bit strange, isn't it? To my ears anyway. Therefore, he says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, it'll be yours. It sounds like the name it and claim it sort of Christianity that the rest of the Bible doesn't support. Now, I, I feel like I'm still struggling to make sense of this, but let me just make three points about it that I think is what is on Jesus' mind. Firstly, he's saying, have faith in God, not in the temple. It's going. But you can still trust God to answer prayer. You don't need the temple because God is faithful, especially in asking for forgiveness. And notice he talks about this mountain. It's not any mountain. It's this mountain, this mountain on which the temple is. Because if the temple is going to be destroyed, if that mountain is going to be split in two, thrown into the sea, that's God's judgment. If you pray for that to happen, it will happen. God will do it. It's his intention and you'll be praying exactly his will. And what do you need when that happens? If judgment is coming, what you need is forgiveness. The worst thing that can happen for you is to be found before God unforgiven. And so verse 25, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And it's in this context, we have the story of the vineyard in chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. The challenge comes to Jesus' authority. By what authority are you doing all these things? What, who gave you the right to take over and take charge of the temple? Who do you think you are? And Jesus tells this parable. Starts off, a man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a pit for a wine press, built a watchtower, rented it out to farmers and moved to another place. He's got tenants. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect them some of the fruit, the, the rent that's due. Now, it's an f- interesting little story, isn't it? But it's a story, again, that has Old Testament background. What's called the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. God says, I'll sing a song to the one I love, a song about my vineyard. I built a watchtower and I cut a, a wine press for it. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. That's what this story is about. It's about the nation of Israel. God is the owner. He planted it. He he planted Israel as his own people. He won them, uh, released them, liberated them in the Exodus. They're his. So what do we see? The owner is God. The vineyard is Israel. Who are the tenants? Because they're not in um, uh, Isaiah chapter 5. The tenants, fairly clearly, are Israel's leaders. Those to whom God has entrusted the leadership of his people to shepherd them for him. But when uh, the the servants go to to collect the rent, what do they do to the servants? They beat some up, they kill others. Presumably the servants are the prophets of the Old Testament. If you know what happened to Elijah, what did he do? He came to Israel and, uh, and King Ahab and his wife Jezebel conspired to try and kill him. They hounded him out of the country. When he came back in, they tried to kill him again. Jeremiah ended up in the bottom of a well imprisoned there till he would do what the leaders required. He sends the prophets and they're mistreated, many of them killed. And then the owner says, this is what I'll do, verse 6. I've got one left, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, 
they will respect my son. Who is this son? He's the only son. He's the love son. He's the last card. And he hopes that he'll be respected by the tenants. But they see an opportunity to advance their own evil intentions. They say, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Who is the son? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Who is it that the leaders of Israel are plotting to kill? Well, you've already told us back in verse 18, they're plotting to kill Jesus. He is the son and they'll do it. They will kill him. They imagine that they can protect their own authority by killing Jesus, by getting rid of the one who acts like he's in charge. But Jesus then asks the obvious question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? (laughs) See, they've made their calculations. We kill the, the heir, then we get it. But they've miscalculated because the owner still exists. He's still there. He's not on the property at the moment. But when you do that to his son, he will take action in two directions. The first is he will get rid of those tenants. That is, there'll be no more patience with these greedy, plotting, violent insurrectionists. There'll be an end to them. And there was in 70 AD. But there's a second outcome, a twist to the story. And Jesus quotes... Psalm 118, one of those psalms of ascent. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. It's the same event that the builders rejected the stone. The leaders, the tenants killed the son, killed Jesus. But God turns things around. He reverses it. He, he takes that stone that, that, that's been rejected, that's been thrown on the rubbish heap, killed and thrown out and makes it the cornerstone of his new world, of his new work. Then you say, hold on, the son's dead. They killed him. There's no future for dead people, is there? You don't make a dead uncle the CEO of your company. No, it shows that God knows and Jesus knows that he'll be resurrected. He'll be raised to become the foundation of God's new building, of God's new temple, of God's new people. And that has extraordinary implications. Do you see what it says about who Jesus is? The identity of this person that we meet in Mark's gospel. We know already that he's the Messiah. Back in chapter 8, Peter has said, you're you're the Messiah. We've, We've finally figured it out. But Messiah is right, but it's too small. He is the son of the owner. He's in a different category to the prophets, to mere humans. If there's the owner and the owned, if there's the creator and the creature, which side is this person on? Not the creature. He's on the creator side. He's divine, not merely human. The only son of the father. He's not the father, but he is divine. He's God, the son. Often people claim that the divinity of Jesus was a fourth century invention by somebody like Constantine. No, it goes right back to Jesus. This story shows clearly who he thinks he is. He's claiming to be God the Son. He's already done enough to demonstrate that's true. Remember when he healed the the paralytic who came down through the roof? Before that, he said, your sins are forgiven. And the teachers of the law rightly said, hold on, only God can forgive, that's blasphemy. How does Jesus respond? Oh, no, I'm not, not claiming that. He says, I'll show you I can do it. Get up and walk. And he does. He's claimed to be God. He's done it again now. 
And he tells us something about the future. That physical temple was soon to come under the judgment of God, destroyed, desecrated, consigned to the rubbish bin of history. And the leadership of God's people was taken away from the incumbents and given to God's son, to Jesus. And God's son has become the cornerstone of God's new building, of his new temple, of God's new work, a building not made with human hands, but by God himself. That involves a wonderful salvation that encompasses foreigners and people who belong, finding certain forgiveness. If you're reading Uncover with a friend, one of the really sort of awkward bits is when you get to the resurrection of Jesus, Mark does it in eight short verses. All you get is he's not here, he's risen. You don't get any resurrection appearances. And you think, Mark, why didn't you tell us more? Well, maybe he did and we lost that bit of the scroll. But I think chapter 11 and 12 tell us all we need to know. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of a whole new world. The only thing you need to know is he is risen. So here's a snapshot, one little picture of the real Jesus. Some want to see him as merely a prophet or a great teacher. Some want to see him as a victim of historical amplification. Others exaggerated his identity beyond that of an ordinary person, but that's really all all he was. Now, Jesus is God the Son, claiming authority over God's world and everything in it. He owns donkeys and fig trees and temples and Israel and the world. But he comes as a humble king, riding on a donkey, knowing that he'll be killed willingly do it, giving his life as a ransom for many. But now, resurrected and the cornerstone of God's new wonderful work. Is that your Jesus? By what authority does Jesus do all this? Enter Jerusalem to the king, clear the temple out. With the authority of God the Son. Not the authority of Scott Morrison or Elon Musk or uh, Christian Ronaldo. It's much more than that. This is authority that we can't ignore because he's not a mere human. He's our creator, our maker. If he was just a prophet, just a pretender, we could sort of ignore him and hope to get away with it. But if he's God the Son, we can't ignore him. He's our maker. He's our creator. We can't do the Play-Doh thing with Jesus. We've got to take him as he really is. Thank you.